The Homeland Security Department Inspector General Joseph Kafari is hanging on to his job by a thread. He admitted in a hearing that he's deleted messages from his government cell phone, which at least two members of Congress say is a violation of federal records laws. They want him to resign. And we get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, he's been kind of under critique from the inspector general community itself for conditions that he has harbored in his office. And now you have this going on. What's the latest? Right. Well, the latest is that Democrats had held off for quite a while on actually calling for his resignation. But after this hearing last week, which is before a House Oversight subcommittee, Maryland Congressman Glenn Ivey and the chair of the Homeland Security Committee, Benny Thompson, both called for him to step down. And really the main thing was that uh, Maryland Congressman Glenn Ivey told me later that this was really the last straw in connection with Kafari because during the question that Ivey had with him, he basically acknowledged that he had decided on his own to uh, delete text and, and take away electronic records, which you know, you would think that the this position, you would be very sensitive to that because he's required to keep those in connection with, for example, some of the internal investigations that you just alluded to. So after this exchange uh, in which Kafari essentially admitted, yes, I did delete these and I thought I had the purview to do this because of my position, uh, Ivy said that was just enough in his view as, along with the, the Homeland Security Chair, Benny Thompson, and they issued a, a very strongly worded message saying that he should step down. And this was really the last thing, uh, which we can talk about more uh, on top of several other things that have happened over the last few years. Right. And no reaction from him at that point that we know of yet. Right. We still don't know if he is going to try to hang on, but I think you can anticipate he is going to try to fight this. Uh, He has been under scrutiny, as you noted, uh, for a few years now since he was appointed under the Trump administration. And uh, he basically says that he's been victimized because of people that have a lot of axes to grind, that uh, Democrats are after him as well. And he's gotten Republican support in connection with his job. So I think that he's going to try to hang on as long as he can. And what are some of the other allegations that have trailed him for low these several years? Well, the first one and the really the biggest one was he really shocked many members of Congress when he told them a few years ago that he had learned that the Secret Service, after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, that the Secret Service had eliminated its texts uh, on January 5th and the 6th, and nobody knew about this. And then after they followed up on it, it turned out that his office actually knew about this for many months. In fact, Ivy said he thinks that he may have known it for more than a year. So this was really a a mind-blowing moment for a lot of members of Congress trying to figure out what happened on those days. Now, the Secret Service, when pressed, said that this was part of a regular upgrade of its phones, but many people are skeptical, obviously, given the day that it was right before January 6th and then on January 6th. This could have clearly uh, provided a lot of information about things that former President Trump was doing at the time. So that one really set them off. And then internally within the Homeland Security Department's IG office itself, there have been uh, allegations in connection with sexual abuse and um, 
a variety of people saying that they were not being treated well and mistreated, frankly, uh, under the law in the department. And many lawmakers do not think that he actually investigated them as aggressively as he should have. And also his own records and his own uh, texts were also eliminated in connection with that investigation. So clearly he's been feeling the heat here from lawmakers for quite some time. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And what about the Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, the SIGI group? Have they weighed in on Kafari? I think they have. They have. And uh, they've noted that he's been investigated for these past couple of years, and they really want to see something done in connection with making sure that uh, this type of thing doesn't happen. And and kind of related to that, uh, some Democrats have actually proposed legislation that would effectively tighten the uh, oversight of the inspector general, which, of course, the inspector general is the person who's supposed to be this backstop for these investigations and for things that are happening happening within the department. So I don't know that it's necessarily going to move forward because uh, Republicans, again, have defended him to this point and said that basically they are pointing the finger back at former President Trump. But it does show how much scrutiny he is under. All right. And uh, he's hanging tough for the moment, then, fair to say. Right. Exactly. I don't know where it goes from here. Uh, That hearing obviously really heightened this to a a new level, uh, especially after everything that had happened over the last couple of years. So he is likely probably going to continue to fight this, I would think, in the coming months. And on the January 6th point, that's something that still another congressman, Jamie Raskin of Maryland, also questioned. Right. This was really interesting. So you had the back and forth between Kafari and Maryland Congressman Glenn Ivey on the whole incident about whether or not he had been deleting his own texts. And then you had Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, who, of course, was uh, on the uh, House panel that investigated January 6th. He asked a lot of tough questions to Kafari at this oversight hearing about why did Kafari basically fail to notify Congress, which, by the way, is required by law, that he thought that the DHS effectively was not going along with his requests uh, to get more information from the Secret Service. Now, Kafari said he was working with the Department of Homeland Security and trying to get that information. Why he didn't elect to tell members of Congress, still kind of unclear. He also said that the DHS itself had not preserved records that should have been protected. So, At this point, he thought that he was doing all he could, or at least this is the way he explained it to the members of Congress, that he was doing everything he could to try to get this information and had just failed to give the information to lawmakers. But Jamie Raskin pointed out that that really is the role of the inspector general to protect and to go after the information and make sure that the information gets out. So that was an interesting moment in connection with this hearing last week. Yeah, pretty soon people are going to start routinely searching bathrooms and auditoriums for records for pictures we saw last weekend. And what about the administration? I mean, they could conceivably dismiss him, right? They could, yes. It's really up to the president whether or not to do this. And I asked Glenn Ivey about this in an interview that we had later. And he said, yeah, it's it's ultimately up to the White House whether they can actually get rid of them. I think they're allowing uh, congressional Democrats to take the lead on this to see whether or not there is enough of a groundswell to actually get him forced out. So I I think we'll be watching this space very closely because the administration certainly could get rid of him at any point. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks for that report. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. 
they never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.